Hello, I'm Kyle Willoughby. Joining me is Claire White. Hi. And this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. We're here to discuss new nerd creations, how they were made, and explore the roots of the characters and the stories. And I'm really excited about our episode today because it's something that I love and Claire and I just played yesterday. So Claire, what is it? We're talking about Magic the Gathering. Yay, Magic the Gathering! Magic the Gathering is a strategy card game where the players are wizards casting spells pulled from fantasy worlds. These spells target opposing wizards or, if you must, human players. I'm not a human player, Claire. I'm a wizard when I play Magic I know, the Gathering. I know, Kyle. Me too. <laughs> In the hope of being the last wizard standing. Spells can range from summoning creatures like vampires, robots, zombies, elves, knights, mermaids, or my personal favorite, dragons, to rewinding time, to sapping life from opposing players, and I am just touching the surface of yeah. the kinds of spells you can There's cast. There's so many. The game was designed by Andrew Garfield and released in 1993 by then-new company, Wizards of the Coast. This year, Magic is celebrating its 25th anniversary, and we thought that was as good an excuse as any to talk about Magic the Gathering. Yes, I'm so excited. And you're right, there's no, um, I, there's robots, but have you ever seen a sexy robot card? In, no, uh, Magic the but Gathering? I bet you that exists. There's plenty of sexy mermaids, let me tell you. Yes, true that. <laughs> Kyle, what are you talking about? In uh, in Magic the Gathering. Oh, what am I talking about? <laughs> I'm talking about, I'm going to be talking about the history of, of cards and card games. I'm really is, excited for yeah, your segment. it's actually pretty cool. And I'm going to talk about the founding of Magic and how it came into being. The game. Yes, not, <laughs> not Magic. Not the magical arts. Yes, the founding of Magic the Gathering. <laughs> also... Kyle, something is different today. Oh, yeah. What? What is it? Oh, I don't know. I feel so much happier for some reason. <laughs> I'm not sure why. <laughs> um, we are drinking something we that is are. not coffee or water. I Actually, know. I, I have coffee and water, too. Me, too. It's like a brunch in here. <laughs> um, we are drinking cocktails. We are. And uh, this is something really exciting. For this episode, we are partnering with a blog called The Nifty Nerd. It's written by Jessica, and it is where nerd culture and geek passions meet classic style. She writes about geek-themed crafts, recipes, cosplays, and more. And for this particular collaboration, you can go to theniftynerd.com to find Magic the Gathering Planeswalker cocktail recipes. And that includes what we're drinking right now, which is Chandra's Fireball Old Fashioned. Yes, and Chandra is a character from Magic the Gathering who's this kind of steampunk-designed young woman who is based around fire magic. She's always lighting stuff on fire in in Magic the Gathering, and that's like her abilities revolve around fire. And so this uh, spicy old-fashioned is the perfect mix for a Chandra drink. It is, it is. There's a bunch of them on there, though. There's like Liliana, who's another character in uh, Magic the Gathering. She has a cocktail, and Jace the Mindbender, another character. Has his own cocktail. Yeah. They're um, all. She has a handful of magic-based cocktails on the blog, and they're just absolutely delightful. Yeah. I think I squealed. I know. When I, we were super excited when I saw them. So, cheers, Kyle. Yes, and thank you, Jessica, for giving us these cocktail recipes and allowing us to drink while podcasting. I know our producer James, who's from Salem, Massachusetts, the home of boringness and dumb temperance movements never lets us drink while we record. Uh-huh. So now we can't stop us. Now we can't stop us. Well, do you want to take it away, Kyle? After I, you chug that drink? After, <laughs> after I put this old-fashioned, after I put Chandra's old-fashioned back, yes, I will get started on the history of card games. So I want to talk a bit about cards, which sounds kind of boring, right? Yeah. It does. 
that. You could say it. You could be honest. It does. Cards are not super exciting. Uh, but you're wrong. It's actually really interesting. So I'm going to jump right in. Most historians believe that playing cards as we would know them um, and card games in general came out of China and spread west, changing and evolving as it went. Now, one of the earliest known references to a card game comes from the 14th or comes from a 14th century history of an emperor of the Lao dynasty who is mentioned playing a game of leaves. So the history is from the 14th century, but the Lao dynasty was actually in the eight nine hundreds. Okay. So it's a 14th century of someone before them, an emperor before him, playing a, something called a game of leaves. It makes sense with that his cards ministers. would have been around that long. Yeah, yeah. And there's other references to even older than this one to this leaf game, some being as far back as 864 CE, so, also in China. Where they played on actual leaves? So that's the thing. It's not sure how this game was played, and it's still argued that this was even a card game to begin with. Some historians believe that it was actually a board game of promotion and demotion, kind of like Snakes and Ladders. And you. Shoots and Ladders? Or Shoots and Ladders, yeah, excuse me. Well, I played Snakes and Ladders as a kid, too. It's the same thing. Just oh, really? Snakes instead of. Uh, Shoots? Instead of uh, oh. slides, yeah. And you would, you would use dice, and the leaves that were referred to in the name are in reference to a written rule book that was written on leaves of paper, which was kind of rare for that time. Most things were on scrolls, leaves of paper were kind of new. Okay. So, like, just paper sheets, essentially. And other historians believe that it, it wasn't even, like, a true card game. Like, it, it wasn't a board game type thing, but it wasn't a true card game. They thought it was a drinking game that used uh, leaves of paper, mostly played by the Chinese elite and government officials. I would believe that drinking games have been around since the end of time. Yeah, The beginning of time. And, and we'll be around till the end of time. Speaking of drinking games, Claire, cheers! <laughs> As we continue on our journey <laughs> with card games. But no matter what it was, what this game of leaves was, which we're still not sure, it was a more recognizable playing card game started to show up in Chinese history a little bit after there's mentions of the game of leaves. Around the year 1000. Uh, and these early cards are much more reminiscent of cards that we would recognize today. And they're believed to be based on the paper money that was in circulation in China at that time. Still blows my mind that China was using paper money in like eight, nine hundred, a thousand CE. That's pretty incredible. Uh, so the cards had four suits with nine cards per suit, and they were all based on monetary denominations. There mm. were yeah, the suits were there were coins, which were ones, one, two, three, four, five, up to nine, strings of coins, which were tens, so 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, up to 90, myriads of strings of coins, which were like a bunch of strings together, which were the hundreds. Uh -huh. 100, 200, 300, and then myriads of myriads, which were thousands. Okay. And each suit also contained an honor card, which seemed to be the precursor to European face cards. Okay. And I, it's, it was hard to find what kind of games were played with these. People think uh, it was kind of like a dice-type game because they're all based on, on number denominations. So you would, like, have to draw a certain number when drawing cards, and that's how you would win. It was also ga normally gambling-based. I would assume gambling-based because yeah. stakes are yeah. always more interesting. And it makes sense that cards came out of China originally because China and Korea were the ones who had printing and movable, movable type way earlier than they did in Europe. So Gutenberg is commonly credited with inventing the printing press mm -hmm. in the 1500s. Korea, it was invented in Korea in the 12-1300s. And then even before that, uh, Chinese monks in the five six hundreds were using block letters to s set type and stuff. Holy! 
So knowing I had no idea. Yeah, knowing that there were yeah, we we're taught there was oh it's Gutenberg. Yeah. No, Gutenberg they think Gutenberg learned it partially from playing cards that were coming ask, out of the East. Did he and being copy? like there's there's a way to do this, I think, and it yeah. and figured out the printing press. It's so it's it's super it's super interesting. <laughs> China putting Western Europe to shame. They did for a long time. I know. <laughs> Uh, so the cards that came to Europe, they didn't come directly out of China, as I just mentioned, but rather from the Middle East and North Africa. Cards started to hit Spain and Italy, and they were known as the Saracen Game because they came out of Mameluke-controlled Egypt and North Africa. And the Mamelukes were they were originally like slave soldiers who rose up, defeated their masters, and then carved out their own kind of uh, caliphate empire in North Africa and the Middle East. Uh, so they controlled Egypt, and they a lot of those slave soldiers coming from, you know, poor soldier backgrounds played cards. Now, the earliest references to cards and card games in Europe are mostly from them being outlawed or cautioned against by religious and authority figures. And this makes sense if those cards and card games were coming out of Muslim Africa. Right. And Europe already felt like, oh, we're being invaded by Muslims in Spain and in France and in Eastern Europe. The Their people games start are, playing yeah. these games, yeah. then they'll find sympathy exactly. with the Muslims, with these, and yeah. soon we'll all be Muslims. These these Muslims are, you know, they're not Christians and they're evil. Uh, so most of the re- early references are religious authority figures saying no. Card games were outlawed during the work week in Paris in 1377, which I was didn't even know there was a work week in 1377. Oh my gosh, that's like your parents saying you can't play video games on school nights. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. The Parisian government was like no card games during the work week because they thought the gambling was bad and they thought it it made people fight and you know participate in debauchery. And cards were outright banned in parts of Switzerland in the late 14th century. The cards were also sometimes referred to as the devil's picture book. <laughs> Um, and that's because a lot of these cards had were covered in designs. You know, there were four suits, and each suit was a was a, based on a different uh, design. And and sometimes they could be they could be pretty elaborate. Only the church had seen Magic the Gathering cards then. Oh, I'm I'm sure. <laughs> I don't know if your segment has anything about this, but I, I think there might have been a somewhat of an uproar about Magic the Gathering in the '90s. <laughs> So the cards that came over from the Mamelukes in Egypt to Europe are very similar to the standard deck of 52 that we have today. The Mameluke cards consisted of four suits, that's ten pip cards, so one through ten cards of each suit, three or four royalty or face cards. And these suits were sticks, coins, swords, and cups instead of what we have you know, mm. in our cards of like diamonds, clubs, Yeah, but very spades. similar. Yeah, it's still very similar. Now, as these cards spread to Europe, they morphed and changed, and different cultures adopted different suits. In German territories, the suits tended to be hearts, acorns, bells, and leaves. And in France, and then on to England, the suits were changed to hearts, picks, or spades, tiles, or diamonds, and the clubs that we Mm. have. Now, the Italian and Spanish suits were the same as the Mameluke suits, and actually still are. If you get a what's called a Latin card deck, they're going to have the old Italian and Spanish suits, which are the direct descendants of the Mameluke oh, so cool. Muslim cards. Um, I guess I've never had a Spanish playing card deck. Yeah, me neither. Because the kind of the standard is the Anglo-Franco deck right, right now, and part of part of the reason people think that took off was that the suits were so easy to draw. Right. Anyone could do it. You could flood. You could. Anyone could make a diamond. Right. Well, a club, I also a spade. think. I think that the 
the reach of the British and that's the true French too. Empire. That's, that's I mean, true not too. the Sp- not that the Spanish uh, didn't, didn't have, have colonies, yeah. but I feel like especially in the 18th century, the British were just yeah, everywhere. That's so true it makes too. sense that that would become standard. Yeah. So the Italian and Spanish suits were the same as my aforementioned Mameluke suits, which were sticks, coins, swords, and they used chalice chalices. Uh, with one notable exception, and that was the Mameluke cards had sticks as a suit. In Italy and Spain, this stick, which was representative of a polo stick, uh, was misinterpreted as a wand or a club because they didn't have, they didn't, Europeans didn't know what polo was. Polo was something that was played in Muslim Mid-East and North Africa. Yeah, and the the stick that you'd use to hit the ball around is what was on these suits. Isn't it like the game of the royal family? British royal family. Yeah, it is. It's like you associated so much with the Brits and yeah, the royal family and the aristocracy there, but it's actually a, a game that came out of the Middle East. Does the royal family know that? Maybe not. Someone should tell them. <laughs> They're appropriating. <laughs> but I think just think it's funny that like the Italians are like, oh, that's definitely a magic wand, and which would add to the stigma of like, oh, this is a dirty devil's yeah. game because there's magic How fun. in it. Probably not for the church, but I think it's yeah, fun. Yeah, it is fun. It is. So cards were not always for playing, and they were sometimes used for decorations. And as cards became popular in Europe, they became more and more associated with art. Like if you were rich, you could have this really elaborately drawn card with gold inlays for display, and you'd put it on your shelf. Actually, at the Cloisters Museum up in Inwood in New York City, they have some old cards from the Netherlands. It's one of the reasons I wanted to do this segment of cards, because I always looked at those hand-drawn cards. They're really pretty, and I was like, oh, wow, this is super cool. I I wonder how long have we been playing card games, you know, because they're from, like, the 1500s, the ones in the cloisters. Now, wealthy Italian families started commissioning artist decks, which were these really, really elaborately drawn decks of the normal four suits of cards, the wands, because it's Italian, swords, (laughs) coins, and chalices, but with these added trump cards, they were called, also probably influenced from Mameluke playing cards in the 15th century. These decks which, with the included trump cards were used in a game that was similar to modern-day bridge. Now, the cards later were used for a storytelling game called Tarocci Appropriati, which was later shortened to Tarot. Tell yeah. me more. Yeah. Tell me more, Kyle. So the Italian tarot deck contained 78 cards, which is 56 of the normal suits, you know, with because each suit in the Mameluke deck had 14 cards, with 22 of these extra trump cards. And all these extra trump cards are the familiar faces we associate with tarot cards and card readings. There's the hanged man, the empress, the lovers, death, you know, as a card. And the the game of Tarocci Appropriati was played by randomly drawing cards and using them as thematic points to form a story that you would make up. Oh. So you would draw out ten cards, and based on what cards you have, you would create a story. You know, say you you drew death, and then you drew a nine, and then you drew... Yeah, and you know, it almost sounds like, um role-playing it is well it's, it's very similar to that that these cards were kind of used as as storytelling they were also used in, in other normal more normal quote games like like a, a bridge-esque game which i've never played and i don't know how to play bridge 
Um, <laughs> you never spent a large amount of time with grandma. <laughs> no, my grandma didn't play bridge. All mine did. <laughs> but these these uh, cards and these tarot, 78 tarot decks, were normally really elaborately drawn, and they were full of symbols and scenes, and they had a, a really fascinating evolution of their own. Like, we could do another whole podcast on the evolution of tarot cards and how they the, how the symbols changed as, as, as yeah. time went on. But all this I find to actually be very similar to Magic the Gathering. Uh, there was also an early version of a board game where you would lay out 32 of these tarot cards, so the trump cards plus the random suit cards, uh, and you would try, you would use dice and you would try and race a little counter to get to the end with each card doing something different to your, your counterpiece. Okay. And there's a, a great quote by graphic designer and artist Bill Wolf uh, and he, uh, about what he believes the allure of these cards was and the game revolving around them. He says, quote, The meaning of the imagery was parallel to the mechanics of the play of the game. The random draw of the cards created a new, unique narrative each and every time the game was played, and the decisions players made influenced the unfolding of that narrative. Imagine a choose-your-own-adventure-style card game. Um, And this was a quote from a collector's weekly piece entitled Tarot Mythology, the Surprising Origins of the World's Most Misunderstood Cards, by Hunter Oatman Stanford. Now, to me, Magic the Gathering is kind of a choose-your-own... This Maybe this isn't how other people look at it, but this is how I look at it. It's a choose-your-own-adventure right. game. People sometimes call it a role-playing game. It, I don't think it is. I That's how I see it. Right. Oh, in a sense. But I think there's too many rules yeah. to make it an actual role-playing yeah. game. I feel like role-playing is very open-ended, whereas Magic, there's a lot of constraints. and. Yeah. It's less character driven, well, I would say. I well, it's definitely less character driven. It is more mechanics driven. But I remember when we played a a tournament once, a uh, draft tournament. I built a deck that that every I would get down to I would be about to lose every time, and then I would get out this I would bring out this really giant kraken monster card, <laughs> and I would win. And to me, like I felt like I was living out a story. Like I was the wizard who was able to like at the at death's door, <laughs> but was able to pull out the. <laughs> The, the tentacle monster. Right. And remember, we were driving back from New Jersey from playing yeah. this game with our producer, James, and he was just laughing, thinking about James <laughs> being waved in the air by my tentacle monster <laughs> with oh, it's a the great Mars image. the Bringer of War <laughs> playing in the background. <laughs> so I just thought that was super interesting and, and that the beginning of these tarot cards in gameplay, I feel like are really reflective of Magic the Gathering, oh, at least how I look at it. Yeah. And it's also funny that tarot cards were not used to read fortunes. They were used for a game, a storytelling right. it game. It seems like the origin of tarot cards is actually much closer to A, Magic, but also D&D and kind of a choose-your-own-adventure yeah, type of game. That's Dungeons very true. and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons, people, people don't who don't know who D&D is. That's very true. So using tarot cards for fortune-telling wouldn't even come about until the 19th century. Uh, and that was with the rise of occultism and mysticism in Europe. And occultists would claim that the symbols on these cards date back to ancient Egypt and the Book of Thoth, written by ancient Egyptian priestesses uh, of the god of knowledge. There is no physical evidence to prove this in any way. They mostly came out of the Mameluke Empire and then Italians, you know, I mean, being like, ooh, it's magic. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. That's true. The Mamluks ruled Egypt, but there's no physical evidence to say that there was a book of thought and that these cards have been drawn since, you know, 2000 BC in ancient Egypt. They're passed down from the, the gods, quote unquote. Nothing like that. No physical evidence of that exists. You might have just lost us a 
bunch of listeners. I know, that's true, maybe. <laughs> tarot cards are not for fortune-telling, or they weren't originally for fortune-telling. Yeah, that wasn't their original purpose. There are, however, some fortune-telling, and they're more like fortune cookie cards, that date back to Germany in the very late 18th century, like 1796. Uh, and these are the Les Amusements des Allemands, and they actually have a bunch of them in the British Museum in London. Uh, and there are these little cheesy proverb cards, but they do bear a striking resemblance physically to Magic the Gathering cards. And we'll post some images on Yeah, you Twitter showed them to me. They, they're something very similar. It's very similar, definitely. Uh, and that's kind of, you know, obviously cards have a very storied history and they go even further than that and longer and there's more we could talk about. But that's the little 15-minute really piece. That's really interesting, Kyle. Yes, I love thank, that. Thank I also you. love knowing where tarot cards come from. I know. It's the tarot cards super interesting. To me, tar- to me, tarot are actually the closest to magic cards as yeah. far as any other type of playing card that I've seen. Yeah, at least the, in the way that they look with these kind of quote, fantasy, elaborately drawn scenes and right, stuff. Right, and then and, text underneath. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like the Empress watches or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever goofy tarot card text there is. <laughs> Watch your wording, sir. I know, once again. Sorry. I'm sorry if you're into tarot cards. <laughs> they are really cool. They are super cool. They're really pretty. Well, I'm going to talk about the game of Magic the Gathering and how it came about to being. Um, And I want to start by talking about the company that developed Magic the Gathering and is still responsible for it, and that is Wizards of the Coast. It was founded by Peter Atkinson um, when he was a systems analyst at Boeing. And he got scared that he would spend the rest of his life being a computer systems analyst. Could be kind of boring, I'm sure. (laughs) Or not. It could be really interesting if that's what you're into. True. He had been a role-playing gamer his whole life, and he felt the need to justify the amount of time he'd spent (laughs) doing it. And starting a role-playing game company was an idea that he'd been bouncing around with his friends for years before they actually started it in 1990. The name Wizards of the Coast came from a mage guild in a campaign a friend was playing. And if none of that made sense to you, that's okay. It's confusing. It came from a role-playing game. From a, was it a D&D game, I assume? I, think, I assume. Yeah. Wizards of the Coast released their first product in 1992 called Primal Order, which would provide rules or types of gameplay that could be used in any role-playing game. And I just want to quickly describe role-playing games because we have been talking about them a lot have, today. Yeah. It's where players take on roles of imaginary characters and have adventures, Dungeons and Dragons being the The most famous. It's very open world. Anything can happen. So this Primal Order book did okay, not badly, and it was going to be followed up by two other technical role-playing books. But at the end of 1992, and remember the book came out in 1992, Wizards of the Coast was being sued by Palladium Books, which was another role-playing game publisher. And they said that uh, Wizards of the Coast was using their game system in primal order. So copyright infringement. So just for people who don't know, in Dungeons & Dragons and in other role-playing games like that, you can do anything, but there are, there's a list of, there's a loose list of rules that uh, someone who's called the game manager, the game master, or the dungeon master kind of keeps their players following. So what Wizards of the Coast did with Primal Order was they made their own kind of rule list for a role-playing game, It it was supposed to be for any role-playing game. For any role-playing game, okay. But then... Palladium. Palladium came in and was like, no, 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 you're copying copying our our rules. Okay. So this lawsuit almost put Wizards of the Coast out of business, but they eventually settled. 
But because of that settlement, they couldn't release any other manuals, the manuals they had planned, and they realized that they would need to go in a different direction that wouldn't cost them much money if they were going to stay in business because they were broke from these lawsuits. Oh, my goodness. So the idea for Magic the Gathering came from Richard Garfield, who was a math grad student at the time. He went on to get his Ph.D. in combinatorial math, and he became a professor at Whitman College. No slouch. (laughs) No, he has also developed a bunch of other games, including Robo Rally, Vampire, The Eternal Struggle, Spectromancer, and King of Tokyo. I'm not a huge game nerd. I haven't played any of these, but I feel like it's impressive. Claire, you play Magic the Gathering. Some people would bless you as a fairly huge game (laughs) Game nerd. (laughs) I just mean variety of games. I know that there are people who love trying new games all the time. For sure. So back in 1990, I think it was one or two, he had been developing a board game called Robo Rally, where the player would program a robot. And this eventually got published later. But a friend of his, Mike Davis, pitched this to Peter Atkinson, who was the head of Wizards of the Coast. Atkinson told Davis that they were actually a role-playing company and not interested in board games in the moment. But apparently Davis was super persistent, and Atkinson finally agreed to look at the game since both Davis and Garfield would be on the West Coast anyway. Uh, Wizards of the Coast is based in Seattle, for those who don't know. And Atkinson said the game was brilliant, and he was so impressed by Garfield's imagination, he wanted to publish it, but it was just too expensive. And during this meeting, uh, Atkinson mentioned that he was going to a convention called Dragon Flights, speaking of nerdy, that's, that's that not weekend. Nerdy. <laughs> and then, <laughs> defines on your, uh, depends on your definition of nerdy. And then this is a quote from uh, kind of like an essay, an email Peter Atkinson wrote recounting the history of starting up Wizards of the Coast. Then Richard, probably wanting to show off, asked me if I'd like him to design a game during the next week. And if so, to describe him a game concept and he'd do it. Well, I'd always thought it would be really cool to have a fantasy-oriented card game that was quick to play, easy to carry, playing cards only, fairly easy to learn, that could be marketed through the convention circuit. I had noticed that people spend a lot of time at conventions hanging out in lobbies, standing in line, etc., And I think having a game like this could sell very well in that market. He said, okay. (laughs) And then the next week, Richard told him his idea based on the guidelines he had been pitched. And this idea was something way beyond what Atkinson had expected. And he said it was the best gaming idea he'd heard of since role-playing. So he decided that, yes, we are going to make that game. And Garfield worked on developing magic while he was still in graduate school. See, magic came out of role-playing, just like tarot cards. Yeah, yeah, it came from a role-playing company. Now, Garfield says that the game that influenced Magic the Gathering the most is called Cosmic Encounter. And it's where players play different alien races trying to eventually control the universe. There are over 50 alien races you can play and so many different ways that you can win. And Garfield loved what he calls the limitless variety. It always surprised him how this game played out. And he was also inspired by playing marbles as a kid where each kid had their own collection and they could trade and play with different marbles. So... Earlier on, before this, he had developed a game that he played with friends called Five Magics, where he tried to distill Cosmic Encounter into a card game. And this, he says, is like the first version of Magic the Gathering that he would develop for Wizards of the Coast. Now, 
Garfield worked with the Wizards of the Coast designers, playtesters, and artists for the next months, uh, next few months. And I want to mention that at this time, everyone at Wizards of the Coast was working other jobs. Atkinson, the head, was still working full-time for Boeing. Oh, really? Yeah. And I do recommend, if you're thinking of starting a company or, you know, venturing into a new field, reading this essay and the amount of work and time that they put into it, like the designers were all working other freelance jobs because they didn't have any money. They couldn't really pay. I mean, Atkinson said he was working 80-hour weeks, you know, 40 hours at Boeing and then 40 40 hours for Wizards of the Coast. It's just insane. Yeah. So anyway, they're working on this game. It continues to get pricier and pricier. And Garfield wanted to make a game where people could create their own decks. He thought if people could make their own decks, there would be a huge amount of variety, and therefore they could attract a bigger audience. One of the um, things that he stumbled up against was that he couldn't make bad cards. He didn't want it to be a game where cards were just throwaways, that you wouldn't want them. And a game where rich kids would always have the good decks because they could afford to just buy up the good cards and then win easily. Yeah. So one of the ways he came up with to equal out the decks is to make it difficult to get all the features a player would want in their deck. And in Magic, there are different colors, and your spells are based on the color that you're playing. So each color has different features that you would want, but it can't play with other features. Yeah. So like the blue color is like super tricky. It's like the tricksy color, yeah. And the red color is about fire and, and aggression. Yeah. Fast, yeah. And the green color is brute strength. The white color allows you to gain life. The black color saps like life. Sucks life out of other people. Yeah. Yeah. But part of the reason for all these different colors is that each one. Would feature like a certain trope or a certain uh, feature that Ability, you would want yeah. in your deck, but if you're going to play against another color, you wouldn't be able to have, have those that. features yeah. too. Yeah. And sometimes you can combine colors, but that kind of makes it more tricky yeah, to, in how you can deck. get out all your spells. And anyway, there's a lot of facets to the game. <laughs> it's wonderful. They did lots of play testing uh, when they were testing Magic the Gathering, and they eliminated cards that made the deck so powerful that they just weren't fun to play with. And they also spent ages reworking the wording on the cards, trying to make sure that they couldn't be misinterpreted. So with magic cards, you have an image, and then underneath it, you have, like, the rules of the card. Yeah, what the card does and what the card can't do. Right. And then they also accepted that these rules would be misinterpreted anyway. But they would try to make the margin for error as little as possible, also making it as simple as possible. There's also these flavor texts, these little like quotes from the ma- uh, the magic world that the cards supposedly come from that I, I really love. Like there's this one on this card called Sizzle, which is a fire spell that burns things. And it says, of course, you should fight fire with fire. You should fight everything with fire. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like little stuff like that. Yeah, it just cards. makes the game more fun. It does. Um, and uh, speaking of the images on the cards, uh, Scaff Elias was the art director and he spent Ages looking at old graphic magazines, comic books, and game books, trying to oh, find to inspiration find the for the art. I always thought the early uh, Magic the Gathering cards really do, art style-wise, feel like a callback to tarot cards. Right. Well, and I think comics probably are influenced yeah, by tarot that. cards yeah. and, and old all, sci-fi. Fa- and fantasy art yeah. Yeah, is influenced by tarot And cards. also, Magic cards have like a funny element to them too sometimes and apparently this was always part of the game like even yeah. when they were developing the cards and they were using art that they would you know never use yeah. i think was like frenzy 
uh, was a card that they had, and it was a picture of uh, John Travolta in Saturday Night uh, Fever. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, like copyright laws, they can't use yeah. it in the real games. But having a little bit of fun yeah. with the cards was always something they had in mind. Definitely. Garfield also developed the idea of Dominia, which is a multiverse that was large and allowed multiple interactions between different worlds and could accommodate this ever-expanding system. So the idea behind it is that you're playing these ant-like tree creatures, but you're playing these creatures against zombies, which don't necessarily come from the same quote-unquote world. There are no zombies in Tolkien. No, exactly. So Dominia was the idea that all these universes could come together and play against each other. The game debuted at Origins Game Fair in July 1993, and there was a lot of skepticism around whether Wizards of the Coast would be able to recoup its costs from the game. People weren't that excited about it, and there were stories of cards just being thrown away because they didn't understand why they would hold on to them. But that August, a month later, it was released to the public, and it was an instant success. So this is 1993. I was just talking to a friend last night about how she remembers in 1994 kids playing magic at her school in New York State. Really? Yeah. So if you think about the reach that that has, I mean, the internet was around, but But it wasn't as big as it is now. And kids are playing magic at their middle school or elementary school a year after it had been released in 1993. Magic was very different because instead of being one product, you know, like a board game, it was random packs with very powerful cards being more rare than others, and collecting and trading became a part of the game, which is what the creator, Andrew Garfield, had in mind. And he said he loves that players are able to make the cards their own and do things with them that he never even thought of, even with all his playtesting. Also, this is something that I think is super smart of Wizards of the Coast. They never wanted their cards to become collectibles or something players would get and then sell right away. They felt it would actually serve them better in the long run if the cards weren't, the individual cards weren't worth that much and people would rather play with them than sell them. And of course now some old cards especially are worth a ton. Yeah. But I feel like for the most part when you get a new deck and when I get a new set of cards, my thought isn't ever to sell them. It's like, like, oh, keep this one in mint condition. No, it's like, this is a rare card. I'm going to use it. My deck's going to be amazing. And I wonder if that helped them dodge the comic book bubble, which happened in the 90s, where people were, like, collecting these, quote, rare issues that eventually, like, bankrupt the comic book industry. Right. Well, they said they, you know, it was a choice that they eventually made, yeah. that they could make a lot of profit in the moment by selling these super rare cards, but they felt that they would alienate a lot of their base, which is really just yeah, young kids. Yeah, that's really awesome of them. I, I, that's, that's, that's great, because Marvel and DC didn't do the same. <laughs> No. Maybe they learned from Marvel and DC's mistakes. Um, We're at a point now where Wizards of the Coast is releasing two universes with different cards for each universe's every year. And these universes are followed up by anthologies and comics to expand on the characters. So, I mean, don't worry. They're making plenty of money. In 2002, they released Magic Online, where players could meet online and play each other in matches or tournaments and spend real money on virtual cards. Apparently, they're one of the first games to try that business model. Oh, my gosh. There is now a digital version called Duels of the Planeswalkers, and this is actually designed to aid the physical game. It teaches the rules to new players. And what I read is that, and it's true, the barrier to entry of magic is high because the 
game can be so complex to someone who's never played it before. And so this gives new players a foundation and they can play the AI and before learn. they have to play their friends. Yeah. Today, the person in charge of Magic's development is Mark Rosewater, um, and he used to be a TV writer. Now he's head of Magic's design team, which is just an example of how, like, much they're putting into each new universe. And he says he wants the gameplay to express the emotion of the worlds he builds. Um, Examples he gave is, like, in a gothic horror world, he wants the players to be scared that something horrible is going to happen. Or in a Greek mythology world, he um, wants you to believe that you could become a hero. Yeah, and in the Greek mythology world called Theros, a lot of the cards they come with this. Some of them will come with this little bonus that says heroic. <laughs> so every time they do something, they get a little they get a little more powerful because they're heroic. They're heroic. <laughs> they're Greek heroes. <laughs> Aaron Forsyth is the senior director of Magic's research and design, and this is um, a quote from a FastCompany.com article where he says. We start three years in advance of a set being released by discussing big picture settings, themes, story beats, and mechanics. An advanced design team then spends six months cranking out gameplay ideas that fit in the broad framework, after which the set's design team proper picks the best ideas, expounds upon them, and works with the creative team to make sure the world building and cards mesh well. From there, it goes to the final design team, who has the incredibly difficult job of tying all the pieces together— Rules, flavor, digital implementation, branded play activities, casual play, intro products into one cohesive package. That's three years. Yeah, that's that crazy. it takes for a new universe a, a new to be set released. Of cards to yes. Come out. Yeah. Um, just to kind of tie everything up, and I was, you know, I feel like I'm touching on nothing because yeah. there's just so much that goes into magic, but yeah. and there's so much more that goes into Wizards of the Coast. Community is a big deal for magic. Uh, Friday Night Magic Night is a weekly organized event where thousands of game shops around the world organize local tournaments, and they believe that this helps keep players engaged. It is the most popular trading card game in the world. At least this is what Wizards of the Coast said, and I read that in other articles as well. And according to a Guardian article called How Magic the Gathering Became a Pop Culture Hit and Where It Goes Next by Owen Duffy, written in 2015, Magic is played by an estimated 20 million people around the world in 11 languages. It has a tournament scene, a professional league, and a South Park episode, and over 16,000 cards have been released. That's different. That's not total cards. It's different kinds of cards. You know, there's millions of cards out there, I'm sure. So Wizards of the Coast, going from this teeny tiny little startup to the behemoth it is now. Actually, it was bought by Hasbro. A behemoth. (laughs) (laughs) Another behemoth. Um, It's very impressive. It is. Yeah. I I really love that they didn't try and cash grab in the 90s with, you know, collector cards. I'm sure it was tempting. Comics did that and made a ton of money in the early 90s. And then when that bubble popped, they went bankrupt and it was terrible. And they should never have done that. I think that Wizards of the Coast does a really good job with continuing to engage with the community. And at the end of the day, their bread and butter are the kids who spend their allowances on new decks. Yeah, I'm trying to play this game. Now, what do we think of magic, Claire? Magic the Gathering. We love magic. We do. We do. I'm also going to really start drinking. (laughs) My segment's (laughs) over. And we love Magic the Gathering, right? We do. We do. How did did you 
get introduced to Magic the Gathering, Kyle? I Well, my very first introduction was briefly when I was a young man in elementary school. My older brother had some Magic cards, but he didn't play. I think a friend of his gave them to him, and they were just lying around the house, and they were kind of freaky looking, and they, they seemed kind of scary. Spawn um, of the devil. <laughs> this kind of devil, yeah. They seemed they looked like tarot cards, which growing up in a strict Catholic household, I was always taught that, like, that's bad. <laughs> um, but I didn't start playing Magic until about four years ago, and I was introduced to it by you and our producer, James, who, you know, I worked with. And you guys were like, oh, you got to try this. Come over to the dark side, Kyle. <laughs> and they're like, oh, you like fantasy and stuff? You'll love this. It's a, just a card game. And it's so much fun. It it's, is. It's somewhere. What about you, Claire? How were you introduced? I never heard of it until I started dating my boyfriend, and he loved Magic the Gathering, and I resisted for a really long time. It just it just seemed a little too much. That boyfriend of yours is a nerd corrupter. He really is. <laughs> um, but he and his best friend made me a dragon deck because I love dragons, dragons yeah. and I was like, well, this Guess is too I'm much playing. fun. <laughs> And my dragon deck was awesome and powerful. Yeah, and yeah. Like, that's how you got in. Like, they, they lured you in with a card, a deck of cards full of dragons Right. And so if you're trying to magic. get someone into Magic the Gathering, make them a deck based on something you know yeah, that they'll love. That they and like. it's pretty hard to resist, we let have, me tell you. We have a friend named Becky who plays a, who has a really powerful deck that's mostly mermaids. <laughs> It's like unstoppable. Oh, and it's, it's unstoppable. It's a scary <laughs> yeah, deck. Yeah, it's the scariest thing like any of us have ever played. So it's yeah. Well, what did you what did you want to you you had an experience at oh, Bloomingdale's, right. didn't you? So we were talking somehow. This photographer I was working with at Bloomingdale's had gotten into magic or re-gotten into magic. I can't remember exactly how it worked. But basically, we ended up having a tournament with, like, a bunch of girls who work in fashion who came over and, like, learned how to play magic. And it was just (laughs) so funny and so much fun. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if any of them will ever play it again. But But, speaking to magic's popularity, like, you know, you would never think that these girls would ever deign to play magic. And, like, here they were, like, learning all the intricate rules. And I remember a friend of mine then, speaking of, like, magic and how easy and fun it is to play he said that he spent like his first year of college, like every Friday night, they would go and like buy oh like a, a pack, pack and have cards. a booster draft like yeah. every Friday night, and that he they would order pizza. Um, I don't think they were old enough to drink yet. Yeah, and just play magic. And he was like, "Yeah, that's where all my money went." <laughs> what a bunch of nerds! Who would play a booster? draft? I know. And then he <laughs> showed up to this like Bloomingdale's tournament and kicked everybody's butt. <laughs> like, just took us down. <laughs> Only nerds play booster drafts, which is exactly what Claire and I did yesterday for with some research. friends <laughs> for research. Quote. Um, but we played the new Magic: The Gathering set, which is the 25th anniversary Dominaria set. Uh, which and we is, drank our old fashions. We drank our, our Chandra we Fireball. We drank our Chandra Fireball old fashions. They were delicious. Uh, and the reason the set is kind of the set of Magic cards is special, and it's the anniversary, is that it's going back to the original. Uh, world Dominaria, where magic start, Magic the Gathering started, and, and it's like, a lot of story. repeats of old cards, yeah. and throwbacks to old, it's old cards. cards, which is a lot of fun. Yeah, and it was so much fun. Our it, deck, it was. And let me tell you, I am so bad at uh, deck drafts. I just pick all the cards that I think are cute and fun. <laughs> 
and uh, I don't really have a long game in mind. Yeah. But I still had a great time. Yeah, yeah. And so essentially, what, what happens when you play these these deck drafts is that uh, oh, that's a good idea. Everybody, you yeah, it. everybody has a pack of cards, and you open them, and you pick one, and pass that pack to the left, and it, you go around until you you have enough cards to create a deck to play. Like um, a football draft. Like a football draft. That's. <laughs> and uh, we played one yesterday, and I got second place. Our, Kyle did really well. Our friend Nikita, who is the husband of Patty Hyland, the creator of our logo. wonderful sexy robot dragon logo, is just a magic master. And yeah. he's impossible to beat, and he won. <laughs> <laughs> but it was so much fun. I think there's that fun and like being able to create a deck and seeing the po- like limit unlimitless Limit, yeah. yeah or the limitless possibilities yeah, that, yeah where it can go yeah. and you know like what's the thrill of opening a new pack it, it's such a thrill of like what's yeah. gonna be in here <laughs> one of the things that drew me into it initially was you know there's there's five different colors of magic and these these magics tend to do different things and uh when i first learned to play you would learn about the different kinds of magic, and and I feel like it kind of brought out, or, or at least to me, there were certain magics that I was like, ooh, that's really cool. I want to right. make something that's blue tricky magic. So that's my favorite. blue is tricky magic. Green is like it's like stompy, big, strong, yeah, kind of monsters, foresty yeah. magic. Black is evil, sapphire yeah, like magic. Yeah. Well, I talked about this a little bit earlier. White is like honorable, yeah, good magic. It gives you life, and, and then red is fire and aggression. And it's another nerdy thing that I do, but I talk about it with my friends. Like, oh, like if your personality was like based on magic colors, what would your personality yeah. be? What's your personality, Kyle? I'm a blue-white, which is tricky and kind of control magic, controlling magic. It sounds bad when you say it like that. I'm yeah. not controlling, but that's the kind of stuff. I, there's there's yeah, cards. Kind of personal. You're a good person. Yeah. So I feel like the white is like honorable and yeah. good. Yeah. Also, we should mention that you know white is like the um, the plains. Yeah. The so the the different colors come from different uh, regions. Regions. Yeah. Yeah. So black is the swamp. Black magic comes from swamp. Where the zombies swamp. come yeah. from. Yeah. Uh, green is the forest. Red is the mountains. Blue is the water. Yeah. Yeah. I always think of myself as like white, little blue, probably a little green too. Yeah. You I feel are like a I'm a fairly green. grounded person. Yeah. Which yeah. is that foresty green? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, our producer James is very. He likes, he likes the swamp. Red. He likes the swamp and red magic. Yeah, a little bit of white, I think, in there. Yeah, he's an okay person. He's okay. <laughs> um, also, the thing about white, like it's the honorable good magic, but you can be too honorable with yeah, white. It can be kind of authoritarian in a way. Like yeah. I have a I have a deck of cards that are that are plains, which is white, and islands, which is the blue of the water. And they're they're arresters and they're bureaucrats. So people just want part of their abilities is they just arrest other creatures for a turn. It's like, no, you're under arrest. And like that's not good. good. Yeah, it's not always good. That's kind of bad when you're you know just you arrest people and you. Right, but that's kind of the fun of magic is taking things to the taking ideas to the extremes as well and how you can play with them. What's your favorite deck, Kyle? I well, I, I feel like we've been talking about this a lot, but I have a. Plains, Islands, Blue-White Control deck, Ooh. which I, I, I really like. And it's the arresting ones. I like the idea that you'll bring out a big dragon to attack me, and I'll bring out a bureaucrat that is like, hold on, you don't have the proper permits to attack yet. <laughs> 
you can't do that. Like, <laughs> because it's just so tricky and quirky and weird. I just, I love it. <laughs> what about you? Oh, my dragon deck is yeah, my favorite. Definitely. I just love bringing out these huge beasts and like setting fire to the world. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that doesn't sound very green and grounded to me. It sure Claire. doesn't. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I think I am, but I'm not. But one of the fun things about Magic the Gathering also is you, when you build these decks, you can make themes about them. Like I have a, a swamp deck which is vampires. It's vampires and bats, and it's I call it Team Edward. <laughs> and I want to build a deck that's werewolves and call it Team Jacob, but I, I have trouble finding and werewolf team, cards. They're rare. Oh, they're, they're around. Yeah they're, yeah, they're around. And then Team Edward can play Team Jacob. Team Edward for the, for, for uh, what's her name? What's that? What's Bella. I, for Bella. I've never read those books. <laughs> but it's just fun. Like, then you have a deck that's all dragons, you know? Yeah, yeah. I have a deck that's dragons. I had a deck of, like, Forest creatures that could grow and get bigger and bigger. Yeah. There, you know, um, a friend of mine has a rat deck. Yeah, it's all rats. Yeah, which I, <laughs> I that's gross. also a, a color that I tend to like, just, I don't know if it's like aesthetic wise. I never am attracted to black decks. To the swamps? No, they, I don't know. I think like zombies and stuff, it's never been something that I have been there into. Are, our producer, James, one of the first times I played him, he played me with a zombie deck. It was all zombies from the swamps. And, yeah, none of those. Zom- There's no sexy zombies out there. There's, There's no sexy robots. Zombies. There's sexy mermaids. I did not see one. Sexy elves. Sexy elves. I did not see one pretty zombie. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming. It's, it's coming. coming. Just yeah, do just wait. wait. Just it's wait. like the seduction zombie. 16, we don't know what it is. <laughs> 16,000 different cards. Maybe there is a pretty zombie out there. So Magic the Gathering, we recommend we it. We love it, and we definitely recommend it, and it's a lot of fun. It is a little complicated, but you stick with it and, and play with someone who knows, and, and you learn quick, I think. Yeah, if you have someone who is patient enough to teach you the ins and outs, it it's a, it can be a, so much fun just to build a deck that you feel like represents yeah. you or yeah. that you would want to be if you ever wanted to be a mermaid. Yeah, exactly. Or an elf. And I just want to toast... To Magic the Gathering and the Nifty Nerd for these delicious Chandra Fireball cocktails. And fun times. And fun times. To the Nifty Nerd and Magic. Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm Kyle Willoughby. And I'm Claire White. And this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsrapodcast.com. And we would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. You can find the show on Twitter at DSRA Podcast. I can be found on Twitter at Klex303. That's K-L-E-X-303. And I can be found at Along With Claire. That's C-L-A-I-R-E. You can also find the Nifty Nerd on Twitter, the the blog that ins- that created these delicious cocktails at Nifty Nerd Spot. That's Nifty, N-I-F-T-Y, Nerd, N-E-R-D, Spot, all one word. And you can find our producer James at James Foey. James Foey, F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R. You can learn more about the history of card games and Wizards of the Coast Yeah. on our Facebook and Twitter, where we're going to post some of the articles we used in our show. We're also going to leave a link to the Magic the Gathering blog post by the Nifty Nerd, where she's got all the cocktail recipes that we looked at. There's the lovely Chandra one, which we've been shouting out. There's also four other great-looking cocktails. And also, you can reach out on the Facebook and Twitter and let us know if you like us better drinking. Actually, <laughs> let James know. Let James know. He if needs you to like know us these better things. drinking. <laughs> our producer is James Foley. Our logo was done by Patty Highland, and our theme was composed by Pete Rowan. Once again, this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures in Nerd Manual. Thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks when we talk about the Dan Simmons book, The Terror, now a show on AMC.